Please turn with, with me to Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. I'll read it for us here. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Try to think back to me, remember back to a time when you were part of a large, excited crowd. I think most of you guys can remember a time when you were part of maybe a Red Sox game or a Bruins game or a Patriots game or a political rally or uh, maybe it was a rock concert that you've been to. Uh, Just imagine a large crowd, an excited crowd in Maybe even more fitting, if you've been to the July 4th celebrations in Boston, Pops, the concert, the Esplanade, that's really crowded. A lot of energy, very large crowd. So imagine something like that. It's really intense. You can feel almost the energy of the masses because it's just, there's so, much, so many people. And large crowds are, are kind of a scary thing because they can make really loud noises. They could shout together. They could clap together, make a lot of, they could swarm to places and sometimes people get creamed under the crowd moving. Right? I mean, it's a dangerous thing. That's why whenever there's a large crowd gathered, the police and the governing authorities get nervous, right? Because they have to keep order, right? So they, there's, that's why there's always people patrolling whenever you go to gatherings with, with large people. Because given the light, right set of circumstances, even a peaceful gathering of, of, of large amount of people can quickly turn into a violent mob. Just given the right set of sparks and circumstances. That's the, when in a large group, people can be driven to do things that they would perhaps never do on their own. And that's called group behavior. And that's why people are dangerous when they're in groups and people are scared when there's large groups. So imagine this. This is what's happening. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the week of the Passover, which is the biggest celebration that the Jews have for for throughout the year, which means hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem at this time, coming to Jerusalem. This is a lot of people. A lot of people coming in, large crowd, and guess who's getting nervous? The governing authorities, right? Imagine this. This is even, this is even, even worse because 
Passover is celebrating what? It's celebrating Israel's exodus, right? It's, it's the Passover, how the Lord passed over the Israelites, but punished the, punished the Egyptians, killed their firstborns, all their firstborns, in order to get the Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. So it's a story of redemption. It's a, it's a celebration of God's liberation of Israel from Egypt. And what makes this really interesting and makes the tension even more intense is that they're no longer free. They're occupied by the Roman Empire. So you can imagine the nationalistic fervor and, and the religious fervor that's surrounding all of this. And it's, it'd be kind of like, let's say we got, the United States got taken over by Great Britain again. Let's, I mean, this is probably not going to happen. <laughs> but let's say, let's imagine that that happened again. And they we're under their rule, but we celebrate the July 4th holiday every year. Wouldn't you be nervous if you were, the, if you were part of the occupying empire? I mean, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's going on here. The Roman Empire is ruling the Judean province, it's Israel, and these pilgrims are coming to celebrate how their God had delivered them from their occupation before. And maybe they're saying, God can do this again. You can imagine it. Just picture it with me. You're in a family, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. They just ate the, ate the meal, and the father gathers their children around. Guys, come. Let me tell you this story. Almost 1,400 years ago, we were enslaved, were enslaved by the Egyptians for almost 300 years. They worked us ruthlessly. They put the slave drivers on us. And at, at one point, they even killed all, all, our, all our male newborns. They were under two years old. But one survived. His name was Moses. God called him. He grew up as an adult. God brought him and used him to bring plagues upon Egypt he turned the water into blood. He brought frogs, gnats, flies, pestilence, boils on the Egyptian skin, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally, death to all the firstborns of Egypt. We survived because we took the blood of the lamb that we had roasted and put it on the doorpost, and the angel of death passed over us. This is what we're celebrating today. And guess what? Maybe they're muttering under their breath, God can do this again time from the Romans. Can you imagine that? That's the intensity of this kind of gathering that's happening, the Passover celebration coming. And that's why Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem at this time. Because Pilate, as the governor of the Roman province of Judea, which included all of Israel, he, he would have normally resided in Caesarea, which is I mean, it it's, would be an equivalent of Tel Aviv now, modern city of Tel Aviv. It's not in Jerusalem. He didn't, well, he didn't reside in Jerusalem. But for the Passover, he was required to come because he had to maintain order because they were scared of what might happen during the Passover by the Jews. And he had about 3,000 soldiers at his disposal, and his function was primarily mili- military. And so he comes, and he, mar- he comes marching in from the other side to Jerusalem, and here is a, another parade coming on the other side, coming down from Mount of Olives. Jesus, his triumphal entry. It's just almost ironic, isn't it? You can just picture it. And it's, it's, it's wild because it's very clear that Jesus is being hailed as king. It's very obvious. They're saying Jesus is king. We know from several signs. First, he does this. Let's look at the first uh, four verses. In verse 2, he says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
Okay, he's just going to go untie the colt and donkey that belongs to somebody else and bring him to him. Okay, so what, why do you expect this to be okay with that person? Why, why are you giving me permission to do that? He says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And that's enough of an answer, really? The Lord needs them? Apparently it was because they let him go. And that's a sign of kingliness because only kings commanded that kind of respect at this time. And kings had the right to temporarily press into service or impress other people's animals, their subjects, into work. That was a king's prerogative. And so he doing that, him doing that right here, he's saying, I am king. Because that's my animal. All universe belongs to me, actually. I'm the king of the universe. That's just say the Lord needs them. They'll give them to you. And they do that. That's the first sign. And then the king is also honored by the people as he comes in. If you look at verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. I mean, you guys know the practice of rolling out the red carpet for, for people, right? I mean, they do that for uh, heads of state. When they come, the U.S. The US honors them by rolling out the red carpet when they come out from their planes. It's something that you do to honor royalty. So you should not walk on the bare earth. We're going to honor you by letting you walk on this carpet instead. This is a really old practice. It goes back, it goes back thousands of years. It's been doing this. And so the people are doing that, and they're spreading trees under them, and, and they're, they're hailing him as king, because only a king is honored that way. And you see an example of this in 2 Kings 9.13, when people lay garments on the steps for the newly declared king Jehu. And he does that. There's an example of this in the, uh, in the Old Testament as well. So there's a second sign. The king appropriates his subject's property. The king is the one that's honored by the people. And the, the, the king also rides on a donkey. Uh, there's a misunderstanding that's, uh, that's been going around about the donkey in the sense that people think that donkey is a lowly animal. They say, oh, Jesus is being humble because he's riding on a lowly animal and instead of riding on a you know, stallion or something like that. But that's actually not what's going on because donkey was a very kingly animal. Because donkey is what you ride when you wanted to show them that I am king and I'm coming to your town in peace because if you're a king and you don't own the town, you've got to come in a war horse. You come in a stallion because you need to beat them and you need to defeat them in order to take over. Because you don't own that city. But if you're a king that owns that city, you come in a donkey. Because you have nothing to fear. That's what a king does. This, this is, he's coming in as king. And I'll, I'll prove this to you from the, from the Bible. Judges 10, 3 to 4. It says there's a judge named Jair. Or Jair and he says he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and controlled 30 towns in Gilead. Donkey is a sign of royalty. When you rule places, you ride on donkeys. That's what you do. Common people do not ride on donkeys. In 1760 BC, there's an archaeologist found a letter from Mari, which is in the ancient Near East, and it says this. I have that up there, I think. It says, Verily, you are the king of the Hanians, but secondly, you are the king of the Akkadians. My lord should not ride a horse. Let my lord ride in a chariot or on a mule and he will be thereby honor, honor his royal head. Royalty rides on a donkey, not on a horse. Warriors, knights, people that have to fight ride on horses. Kings ride on donkeys. Does that make sense? That's why in 1 Kings chapter 1, 30-35, David says this. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada. <laughs> So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. 
and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan, Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then bow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. So in order to show that his son Solomon is going to be king after him, he says, let him ride on my own mule. Because that will show to everybody that he is king, not another son of mine, right? So that's what's, so the donkey is a king. He's, this is, he's not being demure about his kingship. Jesus is coming in, a host of pilgrims coming in on foot. Nobody's riding on a donkey. And Mount of Olives is, is I mean, it's, it's dominating the, the skyline because that's, that's, that's a mountain. And you see that from Jerusalem. And from the mountain comes down, everybody, thousands of people, pilgrims coming on foot, and one guy riding on a donkey. Everybody is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're laying clothes and, and trees, branches before him. It's very obvious. He's not being shy about his king. He's saying, I am king, and I'm coming into my city. That's what's going on here in this picture. And finally, we know that Jesus is king, not just any king, but he's the messianic king. We know that because he fulfills the prophecies. He says in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, in Matthew's showing that he fulfilled this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Let me clarify something here real quick. Some might, you guys might go to care group. Is, is this care group week this week? You guys might go and talk about this passage and wonder, okay, what's going on here? He says there's both a colt and a donkey, and he says Jesus rides on them. Is he kind of like straddling two animals like this? That's not what's going on. He's just talking about the fact that they're kind of joined. It's, it's a joined identity, and because we know from uh, Luke and Mark that this was an unbroken colt. It's, it's, it's a young donkey that no, nobody has ever ridden on. And generally, traditionally, this convention, conventional practice, when you break a donkey into service for the first time, you need to m- make sure that its mother is accompanying it. Because if not, it goes crazy because <laughs> it does not stay calm, especially when there's a lot of crowd around and there's a lot of noise. You need to have the mother with her. So that's what's going on. There's two going on. It's joined that Jesus is riding on the unridden horse, the unbroken donkey, not a horse, and, uh, and he's coming in and the mother's accompanying him accompanying the donkey. And because both the name of the donkey and colt are mentioned in Zechariah 9.9, Matthew is going an extra mile to prove that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy so literally, there's even a colt and a donkey in this scene, even though the other, other gospel writers don't mention um, the mom because I mean, they don't feel the need to because he still fulfills the prophecy when a donkey is mentioned. So Jesus fulfills the prophecy so we know that he is a king. He's the king that was prophesied in fact, he may be the Messianic king because it says in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I skipped over, and this would have been something that would have been on the forefront of the Jewish mind because they, they mention it throughout the New Testament. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to you all that I command him. So the Messiah was to be a prophet like Moses. And that's, that's the messianic ex- expectation. And if you remember, they killed infant boys um, before the time of Moses because they were afraid. The Egyptians were afraid. And, they, and, and Herod, in a similar way, massacred babies because he was afraid of what Jesus, Jesus was going to be because people hailed him as king. And here comes a prophet like Moses. 
and there's three responses that you see. And most of us, or I hope, actually, hopefully not, not a lot of us here, but a lot of people will fall under these three responses that you see in the Bible. Look at verse 4, first of all. It says, the whole city was stirred up by Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The stirred up is actually an understated translation because the same word refers to later in chapter 2751, earth shaking when Jesus dies. It's the same word. So just as an earthquake, the city, the whole city is shaken. It's almost thrown into commotion. That's a better translation. By Jesus' entry, because you can imagine all the the crowds of people coming on foot, one guy coming on a donkey, there's the Romans coming in from the other side because they need to keep order, and here comes the Messianic king, or what people may claim is the Messianic king. So they were stirred. People can't not notice what is going on. The whole city is shaken. And because of that, this recalls what happened in chapter 2, verse 3 of Matthew. When Jesus was born, it said, whole Jerusalem was troubled. So it's kind of linking back to what happened. So Jesus was born. That happened the same thing. Now Jesus is returning to Jerusalem, and the whole city is shaken. And, uh, And because of that, People are curious, and they come out to, to, to see what is going on out from the city. But people that are in the city don't seem to know who Jesus is. That's the first response. Because Jesus' ministry was primarily focused in Galilee, right? That's where the ministry was primarily happening. That's where he healed people. He was, he was like a celebrity in Galilee. But for the Jerusalemites, for the urbanites, it, that would have been still far from the quarters of power, cultural power. I mean, this is where the cultural power is in the city, in Jerusalem, those, I mean, who is this guy coming in from Galilee, right? They didn't, they didn't know who it was. So a lot of people don't. So they ask in verse 10, who is this? So that's the first response. People just don't know who he is. They serve another king. They serve Caesar. But they don't know the identity of the true king of kings. They don't recognize the Messiah. So that's the first response. There's a second response. The crowd thinks that Jesus is a prophet, right? And this is the response that they give. The crowds, this is probably the pilgrims that are coming in from Galilee. They're saying, they're, so people from the city come out and ask, who is this? And people, pilgrims coming and say, oh, that's prophet Jesus. He's the prophet Jesus. He is from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is, uh, in, 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 it's not an adequate response. And the reason why is because he, they're not seeing him as the Messiah. They're not seeing him as the prophet like Moses. He's not, they're not seeing him as the prophet that was to come. That's how he is traditionally mentioned when they're talking about the prophet, not just the prophet, but the prophet. They say either the prophet or the prophet who is to come. That's the way he is mentioned in John 1.21 and John 6.14. But that's not how he's mentioned here. He says, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus, the one named Jesus, and he's from Nazareth of Galilee. And again, that betrays their ignorance because they think that he's from Nazareth, they don't recognize that he had a kingly birth in a place called Bethlehem that was prophesied. They don't, they don't recognize that. They, they think he's from Nazareth. And, uh, and he grew up there, but he was born in Bethlehem, and it was prophesied, and it's quoted in Matthew 2, 5 to 6. O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Jesus. But these guys didn't know that. They, they thought he was just from Nazareth, so that's how you know that that was not an adequate response to Jesus' kingship. And that's why Philip says, uh, when Philip tells Nathaniel in John 1, 45 to 46, that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah and he's from Nazareth, he says what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, because people, Messiah wasn't supposed to come from Nazareth. 
was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. These guys didn't know that. So that's the second attic response. They think that he's a prophet, but just one of the many. They don't think that he is the Messiah, the prophet that was to come, the redeemer of Israel. That's the second response. And there's the third response, and they're the ones that are in the procession. They're, they're hailing Jesus as king, as the Messiah. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the son of David, of course, is a traditional title, title for the Messiah, the Jewish title for the Messiah. And in um, the, the, both the saying Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord come from Psalm 118. And as we talked about, as we sang earlier and Mitch told us, Hosanna means save us now, save us. And at this point, in Israelite history, that probably, they probably didn't use it with that kind of meaning because they don't seem to know what it means because they say, Hosanna uh, in the highest, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Because if it, they knew that he meant save us, they can't say, save us to the son of David. Like, that doesn't work. They, in, in terms of grammatical function, they don't drive together. So they, it's really become a generic saying for praise be to God, kind of like hallelujah. So glory in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, praise in the But... The question is still valid because they're still waiting for someone to save them, right? So it's, save us now, Hosanna, that's what it means. But what, are, what do you want to be saved from? That's an important question. What do you want to be saved from? And for them, of course, it's the Roman Empire. And that's why they lay palms and they greet Jesus with palms. And they remember in the second century BC, in the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews, the Simon Maccabee and, and his brothers, Judas Maccabee, they led Israel in revolt against the Seleucid Empire because they had prevented the Jews from worshiping their God. And so they rebelled against, rebelled against them and succeeded in guerrilla warfare to take over Jerusalem again, take over the temple. And it says, it recorded in the first book of Maccabee, chapter 1351, that Simon Maccabee rode in on a horse and re-dedicated the temple and re-consecrated with a palm branch. So what are they remembering here as they greet Jesus? I want another Simon Maccabee. I want another Judas Maccabee to come in, ride in with the horse. Take over Jerusalem. Oust the occupiers so that we can resume our worship, so that we can re-consecrate the temple. That's what they're looking for. They want a physical uh, king. They want a king that will come in the military fashion to take over. That's what they're looking for. And that's inadequate too. And why is that? Because at the very heart of the verse, in the middle of the prophecy in verse 5, it's the, the central part of the whole passage here. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. This is not a proud king. He does not come to conquer. He comes on a donkey. He comes in peace. That's the difference. The humility comes not because donkey is a lowly animal, but because donkey is an animal of peace, as opposed to a war horse. So he comes in. He's king of all. He deserves it all, but he's not coming to, to fight. And in fact, it's guaranteed that if he comes in like that, in that kind of a procession, so obvious to everybody, he's saying, I'm the king, I'm coming to my city, and it's occupied by the Roman Empire, and the pilot, his pilot came just so he can keep in order, it's almost guaranteed he's going to get killed. Plenty have gotten killed before for claiming to be the Messiah. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And the language humble is reflected uh, in chapter 11, 29 to 30 of Matthew, when Jesus said this to his disciples. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the humble king. He comes down on the Mount of Olives and he's hailed as king. He's welcomed as the king that is to come. Just a few days later, on the same mountain, he is betrayed. And he'll be killed as a pretender, as a blasphemer. Jesus is a humble king. His crown is a crown of thorns. His throne is a cross. It's the modern equivalent of an executioner's chair. He reigns from the cross. He comes not to force people into subjection, but to die on their behalf. And as you recall, the Passover, this is the week where they celebrate the Passover and the Jews were coming in to do that. Someone had to die for the Jews to be saved from the angel of death. The lamb had to die and its blood had to be put on the doorpost. And Jesus was coming not to subject us by force, but to offer himself as the lamb of God for the sin of all his enemies, not just his people. And he dies on the cross. So we don't have to die for our sins. He humbles himself so that we can reign with him. That's the good news that we celebrate this week. That's the gospel. And I don't know where you may be in this story. Maybe you're in the first category where you don't even know who he is. Maybe until you came into this place, you had not even heard of Jesus, or you don't really care. You didn't really care about who he is. But I'm telling you, you need to deal with Jesus. You need to reckon with his kingship because he's a king, and kings have to be dealt with. When a king's in the room, you have to deal with him somehow. You can't just ignore a king because king rules, and he rules over you. He's the creator of the universe. And everybody is serving some king. Which king are you serving? David Foster Wallace, who was, a, who was an award-winning novelist, he wasn't a Christian, but before his suicide, he said this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never ever more, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're subconscious, they are default settings. These are the default settings of our hearts. You're going to be worshiping something. You're going to be serving something. As Bob Dylan once wrote, you've got to serve somebody. <laughs> Which king are you serving? Are you serving the king of kings? Are you serving Caesar? Are you serving something that you've made up for yourself? Maybe you're in the second category. 
You think Jesus is just a prophet, one of the many, or a good teacher. In, our plurist, in a pluralistic world like ours, maybe you think that he's a prophet like Muhammad or Buddha, just another one. But he's not. He's different. None of them claim to be God. And a good teacher would not lie about his foundational identity. That would not be a good teacher if he weren't God and he said he was God. But he was God, and he died and rose again. And only one did that in history. Only one, only one king humbled himself to die for his subjects. That's Jesus, and he did that through the gospel. So yield to the humble king. Maybe you're in the third category. You do believe that Jesus is king. You've accepted him as your personal king, but you haven't surrendered your whole life to him. You're, you want to use him. You're not, instead of submitting yourself to his kingdom, you want to justify your own kingdoms. You want to use him to get what you want. Maybe power, comfort, security. Maybe you want health, wealth, and prosperity. And saying, God, give me this. God, get me into this college. God, give me this much money. God, give me this car. God, let me do this. God, let me have this kind of family. I want my kingdom, and I want you to help me to do that. Or are you submitting yourself to him? Yield to the humble king. And don't fear because we've been in, in probably all of these things at some point in our lives. And we can't save ourselves, and that's why Jesus came. And that's why he's the humble king. That's why he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And don't think that you can, this means you can keep a safe distance from Jesus just because he's a humble king. He demands everything. He demands your all. That's why he says, take up the cross and follow me. That's part of the discipleship too. He demands everything. You can't keep a safe distance from him. But giving your all to him is still infinitely easier than trying to save yourself. Because you can't save yourself. You'll never be good enough for God. But Christ died for us so that we may live. We can carry our crosses only because Christ has carried the cross and took away all our sins. And when we recognize that Jesus is the humble king, that, that he's not some God, some, some arbitrary tyrant that comes and says, you got to live like this and this and this because that's what I said. That's the way it should be. That it's, being Christian is just being you know, wrapped up in a straitjacket. We can't act the way we want. It's, it's not a way of freedom. If that's what you see, know that Jesus is a humble king. He died for you. He frees you. And you know what he did for you. That he as the king of kings, as the creator of the universe, and came and subjected himself to the, to the shame to the pain and to death so that we can live. When you recognize that, then you live in freedom and you have joy. And following him is no longer burdensome. It is joyful. That's the power of the humble king. We were singing, worthy is the lamb. In Revelation, John the Baptist is seeing this vision and, he's, and he hears at first, it says, the lion of Judah. Oh, the lion of Judah, I want to see. And he looks and he sees a slain lamb of God. Jesus is the line of Judah. He is the king. This is his world. This is his city. He is the king. He's also the slain lamb of God. He's the humble king. 
Your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Yield to the humble king. Let's pray. And the band can come up as we pray. God, you are so good. We thank you, Lord, that you are majestic, that you are glorious, that you are powerful and mighty and a glorious king. And you rule over the heavens and the earth. You are the everlasting God who does not grow tired or weary. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus, that you are reliable, that we can trust in you, and that you are strong and mighty to save. But God, we thank you also that you are the Lamb of God. that you do not force us into subjection, but that you come to us in humility, in love, in grace, and you forgive us, and you receive us into your kingdom. God, help us to see and recognize you as who you are, as the humble king. And may all our lives, every aspect of it, from the smallest to the biggest, be completely submitted and yielded to your rule and reign, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.